Here at Michigan Family Wellness, we believe chiropractic care and nutritional-based therapies are a foundational part of a healthy family lifestyle. No matter where you're at in the mitten, having a family is such an exciting time of life. So instead of feeling overwhelmed by stress, fatigue, and responsibilities with the kids, we invite you to become part of this empowering community to create happy, healthy families. By providing engaging interviews and practical applications, Dr. Wallner cultivates family health by equipping our listeners with the tools they need to elevate wellness in their own family. Dr. Wallner passionately serves the Michigan community at his chiropractic and nutrition-based practice, where he specializes in pregnancy, pediatrics, and family wellness care. And now, here's your host, Dr. Kyle Wallner. Good day, families, and welcome home. That's right, my name is Dr. Kyle, and this is the Empowering MFW Family, and we are so glad to be with you today. If you are joining us for the first time, I want to thank you for tuning in. The health of you and your family is your number one priority. It is your greatest asset. The best way to have a healthy family is by living a family wellness lifestyle. So if you're looking for efficient, effective, and sustainable ways to elevate your health and the health of your family, then I strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable because we have an amazing show for you today. Dr. Elroy Voizjani is the founder of Regenera Medical, a boutique functional medicine practice in Los Angeles, California. He is a licensed medical doctor and Institute for Functional Medicine certified functional practitioner and a certified Bredesen Recode practitioner. Dr. Voizjani believes that functional medicine is without a doubt the future of medicine and he is passionate about sharing his teachings and practices of this life-changing medicine with his patients. All right, families, let's welcome Dr. Voizjani. Well, welcome families to the interview portion of today's podcast. I have with me today, Dr. Elroy. Voyage Johnny. Welcome to the podcast, Doc. It's so great to have you. It's great to be here, Kyle. Appreciate it. I just want to thank you so much for coming on the platform here, Doc. I had the honor and the privilege of meeting you back in Denver just last week at the Advancements in GI Medicine Functional Medicine Seminar. And that was a great honor and privilege to get to hear you speak. I think the work that you're doing is very inspiring, not only for myself, but for also a lot of people out there that are just struggling with chronic illness and chronic disease that are just looking for answers where a lot of functional medicine and even the allopathic model has come up short for them. So I want to thank you for your time this afternoon. As we always start with, with every guest that we have on the podcast here, can you briefly tell us what family looks like for you? Mm. Well, I, uh, my family has just grown, actually. So family is uh, a changing concept for me. I have a six-week-old daughter at home. Congratulations. But, you know, Thank you very much. It's been a, an awesome experience. But family is that you know core thing at home that um, I think you carry with you wherever you go. Absolutely. So much resonates with that. And again, congratulations on just the uh, healthy baby, healthy mother there. That's wonderful. Thank the other you. question, yeah, the other question, Doc, we always ask on the platform is, do you have any connection to Michigan? Have you ever visited or been to the Great Lakes or anything like that? I have not had the honor of visiting Michigan, but my brother-in-law, who I am very close with, is a freshman at the University of Michigan. He just started. Um, he just came home yesterday for fall break, so I'm, I'm catching up on all his wonderful times in Michigan. 
Awesome. Awesome. Brilliant. That's great to hear. Um, we're always, I mean, right now with the fall, definitely go blue cheering for Michigan there. And I hear great things about the university with their medical programs and all of their academic achievements there as well. So, but again, doc, I really want to dive into the meat and potatoes of our conversation here, because I really think there's a lot that you're doing in the research field, also clinically with your medical clinic, with your functional medicine clinic out in California there on the clinical side, applying these things that you're doing with the research and actually changing people's lives to elevate their health and wellness lifestyle. Specifically, I wanted to go into a talk of the intestinal permeability and our current understanding of leaky gut because I think there's, again, you've talked about this on your YouTube channel with Aristo Vojdani PhD, where we live in this abundance of information, right? And oftentimes there can be confusion or miscommunication about mechanisms or even new research comes out and we have new understandings. So if I could briefly just kind of tee up a discussion here for you, I'd love to have you take it from there. I think most people have heard of leaky gut and I think of most people know for some varying degree or another that we have these multiple barriers within our body, right? Mm -hmm. So we have six primary barriers, if you will. One being the skin, our first barrier with the environment, uh, our lungs, you can have a leaky lung context, our lungs have a barrier. Obviously, the intestinal barrier, which I think is most widely known. But then we also have a gut vascular barrier, a blood-brain barrier, which has had a lot of attention around it recently, and also an immune barrier. So if we could dive into a discussion of the intestinal barrier, and I know it may branch off from there, I think that would give people a great start in terms of kind of forming a context for our discussion. And yeah. if, I, if I were to start with a question, I think I might start with, I think people kind of get the whole idea of leaky gut being this permeable type context. And listening to your talk back in Denver, what I heard you say, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost as if our intestinal epithelium or those cells that kind of make up our gut lining there's some component of our body sometimes wants to have that be permeable, or I would say most of the time it wants to be a good, nice, tight junction that's closed off. Does that sound correct? Or how does yeah, that absolutely. For you? you got that concept totally correct. And so what we were talking about in the lecture was uh, this research that came out of um, Boston, Harvard, MGH from Dr. Fasano in the last 20 years, uh, mm -hmm. you know, very famous, wonderful, brilliant uh, pediatric GI um, who kind of led this research charge that uh, kind of completely reversed our understanding of intestinal permeability. Um, as we used to think 20 or 25 years ago, and I even mentioned in the lecture that when I went to med school, what we were taught was that the interface between the inside of our gut and our blood, you know, is kind of controlled by this single cell layer called the epithelium layer. And then that is basically, you know, absolute and that the spaces in between those cells, which are the paracellular spaces and where tight junctions live, um, those are, those never change. Those are never opening or closing and nothing can pass through them. If anything is going to pass through them, it happens through um, ion differences or changes in electrical charge, essentially. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Fusano's work was going on actually at the same time that I was learning that in medical school. Um, and he basically flipped that upside down. He said, you know, this is incorrect. We have a mechanism to open these spaces in between these barrier cells that are in our gut and that 
not only are we able to do it, we, we do so with purpose, right? Our immune system depends on us being able to open and close these spaces or open and close these tight junctions to be able to sample what's inside of our gut. And that's in the spirit of maintaining something called oral tolerance or peripheral tolerance, which is our ability to say this is friend or foe, basically. Self or non-self. Exactly. Did you ever watch the movie, The Matrix, Doc? Of course. So that Temet Noske above the door where Neo walks in when he visits the shaman, I forget what her name is. Uh, but know thyself, that's the Latin for know thyself, right? Yeah. And so I just think of that when I reflect upon this concept of autoimmunology or having your immune system recognize what is friend or foe, essentially. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Can you expand upon this idea of oral tolerance and maybe tie this into the ALCAT tests? Because that's an understanding that I'm trying to form and understand as well and have that be shaped because I think a lot of people have heard of the ALCAT test or they've had the testing done and they may feel better for an initial period of time once they eliminate those foods that come out red and all the colors and everything. Again, I think we would both agree is good, but then what's the long-term plan? Sure. So when essentially when we're born, right, we're born with no immune system, just to give us a background on this. And, you know, beginning at about three months of age, our, our body starts forming immune cells within our bone marrow. And we start creating something called central tolerance, which is this really vital part of being able to exist, which is training the cells of our immune system to understand what is our tissue and what is not our tissue. And that, of course, occurs in the thymus and, you know, goes a, a couple of years, two or three years into life, right? That's central tolerance. The idea um, that our tissue is our own and to make sure that our immune system never attacks our own tissue. The expanded concept is something called peripheral tolerance, which is where you're still trying to maintain the idea of self versus non-self, but be flexible in understanding that our environment is ever-changing and therefore our immune system has to be able to adapt to new things. Right. Now, peripheral tolerance occurs primarily in the gut, and uh, this is a dynamic and ever-flowing process as we are exposed to different things in our environment. And, and that uh, maintenance of, oral, of peripheral tolerance is the most important thing that can impact overall oral or antigenic tolerance. And that's where tight junctions become incredibly important, right? Yeah. You need your tight junctions to uh, work appropriately. You need to be able to turn them on and open them in, in regulated fashions in the correct situations in order to expose your immune system, which is centered within the gut, to the right mm -hmm. amount of antigens at the right time so it knows which, which ones to fight and which ones to not, right? Yeah. We don't want to suddenly start developing uh, reactions, for example, to something very common like gluten or its subpeptides, you know, this is not what our immune system is designed to do. It's doing this by accident. And it's, hap it's happening through dysregulation of peripheral tolerance. Um, ALCAT testing. Uh, I can talk about this for a very long time, Kyle. Um, so those of us in the uh, Vojdani school of thought, my dad and I, are actually not very big fans of ALCAT testing. And a long time ago, uh, when ALCAT testing was coming up, and this was in, uh, you know, in the 90s, late 80s and 90s, my dad was asked to be one of the immunologists on staff to validate ALCAT testing. 
And okay. he went, and, and he'll tell this story, I'm sure, at a lecture that you go. And he went, and essentially, you know, the principle of ALCAT testing is you um, extract uh, lymphocytes from the blood, and you're dropping small amounts of a potential antigen into the surrounding medium, and you're looking for changes in character, size, composition of the lymphocytes, and therefore determining if there's immune reactivity to it. Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't able to, I think, validate that to his liking, essentially. So um, we are much bigger proponents of antibody testing as far as food immune reaction is concerned. Mm-hmm. And as you heard in the lecture, um, one of the big areas of research for us is actually validating ways that we do do some testing, which I think is something that everyone who is practicing in this space needs to be aware of is, you know, how reliable, how accurate, how reproducible are the tests that we do? Um, and what kind of science are they based on? So, um, I'm personally not a huge fan of Alcat. I know that there are lots of people out there that use it and they do use it successfully. And it's a very common story um, to hear, I think, what you just mentioned, that people will respond positively initially right. to the foods that are mentioned um, as the you know reactive foods on ALCAT testing, but that those initial symptom, uh, symptom relief will not propagate for very long periods of time. Or maybe, I think more importantly, they don't result in significant healing of intestinal permeability. Right. Um, and the question is why? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that goes into, well, what was the testing really based on? Um, you know, when you look at, I think, how inflammation is centered in the small intestine, in the setting of intestinal permeability, you know that the propagation of inflammation and potentially antibodies to some of those peptides that are migrating across the tight junctions are going to happen. So, um, I think that antibody testing gives you much more important clinical information. Um, and you probably want to look at more than just IgG. A lot of people are looking at just subclass four IgG antibodies, but you know, IgA is a very big part of the gut. So we like both looking at both IgA and IgG. Yeah, I think this is a great discussion here, Doc. I really appreciate you bringing the value here because as a chiropractor, I primarily work with musculoskeletal cases. But after that point of, hey, Doc, you've really helped me with my back pain, my neck pain, my headaches, or whatever it might be, that gives us a level of trust and a foundation to move forward into these new avenues that chiropractors actually have a great access to, especially when a lot of MDs that are tied up in the insurance model are somewhat handcuffed by those insurance companies that are looking for medical necessity and they may not be able to test for some of the biomarkers that we're talking about or some of the alternatives to the ALCAT test like we've mentioned, which kind of gives us a great segue into your whole talk on Zanyun and LPS, which I think is just really exciting and I wish we had hours and hours and hours to talk about this. But can you briefly give us an understanding of this selective permeability because there's some kind of intelligence here where the body's like, look, we may want to open up the intestinal epithelium to let something through, right? Mm-hmm. Or has that really not been proven yet? Or is it always a bad thing to have permeability? No. So yeah, this is a normal physiologic process that happens within our intestines. Basically what the result of Dr. Fasano's research was, mm-hmm. is that we learned that there's a signaling molecule called zonulin, which when is released, the tight junctions will essentially disassemble and And when you look at where the tight junctions are sitting, they're basically the gate for the paracellular space. So they're they're basically opening a gate 
for things to enter directly into the bloodstream and therefore into the immune system. There's absolutely a physiologic function for this. Again, it's part of antigenic sampling for our immune system to be able to say, hey, we like what's inside the gut or we don't like what's inside the gut. And if you don't like it, you want to form a, a reaction against it to protect yourself. Um, so essentially what, what we basically are finding out is that there are a lot of things that we can be exposed to our environment, um, dysbiosis, so an imbalance of bacteria. There are many chemicals, alcohol, common medications like Advil, um, common pesticides like Roundup, food additives like gums and colors that can dysregulate this normal process of our gut and increase the amount of relative permeability that you have. In some cases, actually, tight junctions can be fixed in the open position. So you're stuck in this relative mm. uh, um, consistent opening of the tight junctions. And you can imagine where if they function normally, they're opening and closing in a very short period of time. If they're stuck open, your immune system is going to be flooded with right. tons of new proteins that are coming in. Mm -hmm. So zonulin, we learned, was the signaling key to this, basically the on-off switch, and also a very big structural component of the tight junctions themselves. So when your body releases zonulin, it attaches to a receptor on, on the epithelial surface. We open our tight junctions. Part of that is also disassembling zonulin occludins and other proteins that are in the tight junction. And all of a sudden, you have increased intestinal permeability, and your immune system is basically being flooded with a bunch of uh, potential enemies that are running through the gates. Do we know, you mentioned those environmental stressors, you mentioned just our toxic load, if you will, our mm -hmm. xenobiotics, right? Mm -hmm. Is that what triggers, what exactly triggers the release of zonulin or the upregulation of zonulin, or do That's we know? That's a great question, Kyle. Yeah. Very great question. The only two things that have been uh, proven in the literature to actually result in an upregulation of zonulin are gluten peptides and dysbiosis. Um, and I think part of dysbiosis, uh, you have to start talking about bacterial toxins, whether they're LPS or something I didn't talk about in the lecture. Another very important bacterial toxin is bacterial cytolethal descending toxin, which is part of um, mm. very common infectious agents that cause acute GI distress. But so the, the, I would say the three things are dysbiosis in general, gluten peptides, and then certain bacterial toxins like LPS and bacterial cytolethal descending toxin. Other than that, the studies looking at, well, first of all, a lot of the glyphosate studies are very hard to find. Um, but most mm -hmm. of the other studies looking at alcohol, NSAIDs, um, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the xenobiotics, a lot of food additives are, are, have really just primarily been looking at alterations of intestinal permeability via other methods of testing, not actually looking at zonulin release. Mm -hmm. um, but when you... I, I think when you look at the mechanisms, it's all going to pan out. Zonulin is such a master signaling molecule right. for this concept of intestinal permeability that if those things were linked indirectly to intestinal permeability, I think they, if you did the direct study, you would find a direct link to zonulin. Gotcha. Perfect. Brilliant, Doc. Well, okay. So at any rate, we have this upregulation of zonulin from our environment, from our context, whether it be dysbiosis, gluten, LPS. So then we have the opening of the junctions. Take us from there. Yeah. So... The gates are open, right? And, you know, you can imagine this, and I think it's a really nice analogy. You're, you know, in a fortress, basically. Your immune system is inside the fortress. Its job is to defend your body, if you can imagine that, is inside the fortress. And the front gates have, have suddenly opened, and all the enemies are rushing in, right? And you have 
um, several lines of soldiers that are sitting just be just past the gate waiting for these enemies. And their job is to decide which ones to attack and how to attack them, right? Mm -hmm. So this first line of defenders is our innate immune system, right? Our non-specific immune defense, things that are designed the second they see an enemy to just attack them non-specifically. So we have things like antigen presenting cells, dendritic cells, macrophages, our complement system, uh, natural killer T cells. These are all things that are sitting there waiting for this onrush. They see the onrush happening, they get upset, and they just start releasing a bunch of pro-inflammatory cytokines or chemicals that are initiating basically their war defense, right? They start fighting against these things. Along with that, they also start recruiting more help to the area. So they're recruiting more innate immune cells. They also start getting into war mood and releasing more inflammatory cytokines. And, and this becomes a big localized inflammatory response, right? right? Not an autoimmune response yet, but a big inflammatory response, right? Okay. So mm -hmm. you can mm -hmm. think of this as if you cut yourself on the skin, you know, uh, shortly thereafter, you're going to get some redness and, and that inflama inflammatory response is very similar to what's happening inside your gut when this happens, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the way the immune system works is it, it's, we have a lot of um, layers to our immune system it, because the, the function of the immune system is so important. We have so many things built into it to, to protect us against many things. Now, what happens is if this gate remains open and all the invaders keep on coming in and your first line of defense is fighting as hard as they can, but maybe they're not taking care of the job entirely on their own, they start sending some signals to their guys behind them, which you can think of as maybe the Navy SEALs inside the fortress. And they say, hey, we need some help here. We need some, some bigger muscle. We need someone to help us deal with all this influx of invaders. And those Navy SEALs are our adaptive immune system, right? The right. guys who are designed to form antibodies, which are kind of like missiles against specific things that are coming in through the gut. And this is where issues where with intestinal permeability become linked to um, auto-inflammatory and autoimmune diseases even outside of the gut, right? So the invaders are rushing through, the adaptive immune cells make their way, you know, you have B cells and T cells, which are naive sitting in the gut. Their, their purpose is to survey the field and to form missiles against specific enemies. Um, and essentially, you'll start forming plasma cells, which are mature B cells that will produce antibodies specifically against the enemies that are making their way through that first line of defense. So that's how we can get antibodies being formed to food particles, which is something that okay. should never happen, right? It, it, when the tight junctions are working normally, uh, you can just open it, open the gate real quick, take a peek at who's across the line, say, okay, there's some food in there. We don't want to attack that. There's a bacteria in there we don't like. We can maybe send some guy out there to deal with that. Close the gate and your body inside the fortress is totally fine. Right. In this situation, uh, the enemies have made their way through and that second line of defense has decided, okay, you know, we need to pick up the pace here. And that's where you can actually make antibodies against food particles because of that dysregulation of the tight junctions. And then that's where a lot of the antibody testing would come into play. Is that right? Exactly. No. Yeah. So you're basically testing when you're looking for antibodies. Uh, has your adaptive immune system been recruited to the field to help you fight this intestinal permeability? And, sure. and why that testing is so important. Sorry to cut you off, Kyle. No, 
Go ahead. I, I know I, I, uh, I'm a little bit passionate about this stuff, so excuse me. <laughs> um, why that's so important is if you want intestinal permeability to be healed, you need that whole localized inflammatory response to go away, right? It will not go away until that second line of defense has determined that their, their skills are not needed anymore. So if they're continuing to see that enemy that they were recruited to fight against, for example, let's use something different. Let's say it's casein, for example, uh, protein mm-hmm. in, in milk or whey. Let's say casein keeps on rushing in. They're not going to go anywhere. They're going to stay there and they're going to keep fighting. When It's only when you remove that enemy from your environment by making the decision to stop consuming those foods can that second line of defense disappear from, from that field of battle and can the entire inflammatory response then heal and therefore your leaky gut can heal? Ideally. Ideally, yes. Ideally, yeah. Yes. Again, kind of going back to what we were saying earlier, I, I sometimes feel like that's the experience of many people that do the ALCAT testing. They remove the antigenic or the sensitive foods and then based on what you just outlined, Ideally, then, the everything should start to heal. However, sometimes due to our stress levels, due to all the other environmental factors, I think sometimes that healing doesn't necessarily take place. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I also want to circle back to, you had mentioned some of the diseases that can result from that adaptive immune system being brought into play. So I love your slide here from the talk. It was some of your autoimmune diseases, so ankylosing spondylitis, celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, Crohn's disease, rheumatoid arthritis. So we have, yeah. we have this great new understanding of a lot of these pathologic disease processes that are now being explained with different mechanisms. And I feel like we're able to provide new tools and better treatments for these patients. Absolutely. Yeah. This was the remarkable breakthrough, I think, of Dr. Fasano's work was not just understanding that our tight junctions function differently than we think they do, but a dysregulation of the tight junction is a core central feature for the development of autoimmune diseases. And we're also finding many connections to neoplasms, to cancers as well. So we we used to just say, if you got an autoimmune disease, you were dealt a really bad hand, um, you got some bad genes, and maybe there was some unknown environmental exposure that we weren't sure of. And there might be some weird virus that you're exposed to that we can't really prove. But basically, you were dealt this bad hand, something that happened in a black box, and now you have an autoimmune disease. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, actually, we're understanding that, sure, genetics play a factor here, but you have to also have that disruption of the intestinal barrier in order to develop autoimmunity, which makes perfect sense because... This is the interface or the place where our reaction with our external environment occurs. So our our immune system is centered here. And the way our immune system will act throughout our body will depend entirely on what it's sensing coming from our gut. So yeah, it, it was, I think, incredibly fascinating research. I remember when the paper in, in the journal Diabetes from Dr. Sapone and Fasano came out and they were looking Basically, they found a much higher amount of zonulin upregulation in patients with type 1 diabetes, adult patients with an autoimmune disease that in theory at that point had nothing to do with the gut, mm-hmm. right? We talked about type 1 diabetes being genetic and post-viral for a lot of people, right? right. Um, 
all of a sudden we say, no, these patients have a much higher uh, amount of intestinal permeability than patients who don't have type 1 diabetes. So something else is going on here and it's actually centered within the intestinal system. I think one of the great hopes here is, first of all, our understanding of the adaptive physiology has grown leaps and bounds, even in the brief period of time that I've been in practice. I'm sure you have a much better perspective on this, but what I want to get at here, Doc, is that we can actually test for these antibody levels, these biomarkers that we're talking about. Can you take us through a brief discussion of that? You had mentioned the antibody, zonulin antibody testing that's available. You had mentioned LPS antibody testing that's available. Yeah. An outline why that's better than the serum, because I know that's part of your our research from the yeah study. absolutely so I'll I'll back up a little bit mm-hmm. uh, so we've known that intestinal permeability or alterations in intestinal permeability have been possible for a very long time a hundred years basically and we've had some older methods of detecting quote unquote intestinal permeability by using sugar molecules and testing the amount of them in urine and basically saying if there's more this than that then you have some um, issues with your intestinal permeability. I think the zonulin research wiped that slate completely clean, right? Um, there are a lot of things that can change your intestinal absorption of a sugar molecule that have nothing to do with the zonulin pathway and therefore have nothing to do with your immune system. So zonulin became the focus because dysregulation of zonulin means uh, dysregulation of your immune system means potentially autoimmune disease. If you're not if you're not fixing things at the zonulin tight junction level, you're not doing it effectively. So take the old testing out the door. So people started looking for new things. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the research, all of the clinical research that was being done was being done um, using serum zonulin levels. So this signaling molecule is released in the gut and then um, makes its way into the bloodstream and therefore you're drawing their blood and you can look at the amount of zonulin that they have in their blood. Sure. And when you look at disease states, it, it it is significantly elevated to the point that you can make a conclusion that dysregulation of zonulin plays a role in this disease. But essentially a few years ago, my dad and I were looking at that data and we said, well, Sure, you can draw the conclusion that type 1 diabetes is correlated with an increase in zonulin based on serum levels, but just from our knowledge base, there has to be a a better way where we're improving the clinical accuracy of this test. Because when you looked at the numbers looking at serum zonulin, it was like 42% of the patients would be positive. Okay. If you looked at the celiac disease patients, when you look at serum zonulin levels, you get like 40% of patients with celiac disease. That's an autoimmune disease that is centered in the gut. Almost all of those patients should have a positive um, intestinal permeability test if they have active celiac disease. So the numbers weren't really panning out in a way that we were comfortable using this for a clinical laboratory diagnostic tool. And even Dr. Sapone and Fasano in their own research said, this data is great, but we don't think it is usable for clinical diagnostic use. That didn't stop many labs from using it as a new clinical diagnostic test, which is where serum zonulin levels became a tool in the functional and integrative world. So basically, you have the designers of these experiments saying, you probably shouldn't use it, but labs saying, whatever, we're going to use it. So 
we knew from animal studies and also human studies that were being done on other large macromolecules like zonulin. Zonulin is 47,000 Daltons. It's a big molecule, right? Um, we knew based on other research that looked at big molecules that when you want to look at the stability of those big molecules in the blood, they're just not stable over time um, in a way that you can think about using testing for these things in a reliable way. And that's because your immune system is reacting to them the way it's supposed to. So the example that um, I talked about in the lecture is LPS, lipopolysaccharide, which is a very common toxin of gram-negative bacteria that are involved in dysbiosis. So this toxin is you know, linked to a lot of diseases. Um, you know, I talked depression. about sepsis, DCIS, depression, mm -hmm. um, inflammatory or autoimmune-related uh, you know, um, arthropathies, reactive arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis. So it's involved in a lot of very important diseases. But for a long time, we've known that checking actual LPS levels in your blood is not a good idea, that you should be looking for the antibodies to LPS because mm. the way the immune system works is it's going to see the LPS, it's going to attack it immediately, it's going to create antibodies, and the LPS that it was attacking is going to disappear in a very short period of time, two to four minutes for LPS. So... Well, what if you looked at the actual antibodies? What if you looked for the presence of the immune system forming a reaction to LPS, which indirectly tells you that LPS has been present at consistent levels for at least the last four to six weeks? Um, so that's what we did, basically. We said, this is probably going to pan out for zonulin 2. Yeah. Let's do a prospective head-to-head -head study. Let's take, we took 18 patients. Mm -hmm. We drew them at different times. So we did zero hours for control. We did six, we did 18, we did 24, we did 30. And then we did head to heads of let's look at serum zonulin. And we did exactly the serum zonulin levels that they do in the clinical research and what is available as a laboratory test. And we said, let's compare those to antibodies to zonulin. And then for investigational purposes, we looked at a few other things, occluding clodin, which are other proteins in the tight junctions. And we looked at something called glial fibrillary acidic protein, which is um, becoming a very big part of the gut vascular permeability discussion. That is the new frontier, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially, when you looked at zonulin levels versus antibody to zonulin levels, the antibodies were elevated much more often, and they were much more stable over a time course, over the 30 hours, versus the actual zonulin levels themselves would fluctuate quite a lot from hour to hour. Um, and we took it one step further. We said, okay, we know that celiac disease patients have a higher amount of zonulin upregulation based on the literature. Let's see how we do with the antibodies. 33% of the patients with celiac disease in our study had serum zonulin elevations. 67% doubled the amount had antibody elevations. So when you're talking about a clinical tool yeah. that you can use to reliably detect dysregulation of zonulin and tight junction function, this one looks, based on the data, to be much more reliable, reproducible, stable over time. I bet that was a great feeling to get those numbers back and, and be able to publish those results. Absolutely. It was a great feeling. Cool. Fist bump there. <laughs> for, for, you know, in the spirit of, I think, all of us having better access to, yeah. to reliable tools. Doc, briefly, I know we're coming to the end of our time here. It looks like our recording is still going well, but can you take us through any sort of connection to the vagus nerve, our parasympathetic nervous system? Yeah. The importance of that. Absolutely. So 
it's a different discussion because um, we're talking about tight junctions, but I'm going to briefly wrap this up. So turns out that tight junctions are not the only important structure in that space or the paracellular gap in between the epithelial cells. There's also another thing called the adherence junction, which is our scaffolding network that allows the epithelial cells to sit next to each other and work happily. There's a set of bacterial toxins called cytolethal distending toxins, which actually directly attack the adherence junction. There's a very important protein in there called vinculin. It turns out that when you're exposed to this toxin, and this is work from Dr. Pimentel at Cedar sinai uh, when you're exposed to this toxin, your body will form a, an antibody to it. Um, whether through the miracle of evolution or who knows what, when your body forms an antibody to cytolethal descending toxin, it cross-reacts with vinculin, this protein in your adherence junction, and also cross-reacts with your enteric nervous system. So by being exposed to this very common toxin, you are now forming antibodies to the adherence junctions throughout your entire intestinal system. So this is your method of transducing nerve-related signals across your entire intestinal system. So mm. your way of propagating a migrating motor complex, which is signaled through your vagus nerve to your enteric nervous system, depends on your adherence junctions functioning normally. So you are breaking apart the connection network, and then you are also directly attacking the nerve by being exposed to this. And abnormalities of the tight junction are very often um, correlated with abnormalities of the adherence junctions because, as you can imagine, if you break apart the cytoskeletal network, the tight junctions can't maintain um, their stability as well. So you get a two-for-one, um, you get intestinal permeability, and you also get direct damage to the enteric nervous system. And we're finding out that a very large portion of patients with IBS actually have both of these things. So there's a lot of talk about IBS SIBO, right? That the overlap between the two, but this was another area of, of research that we have been doing and, and looking into um, is basically a large portion. Uh, the majority of patients with IBS subtype D will have abnormalities uh, related to antibodies attacking their cytoskeletal network and their ability to transduce the electrical signals and to their enteric nervous system. And also a significant portion of those with constipation subtypes. So, um, yeah, we are finding out that damage to the enteric nervous system is autoimmune in nature, which is really, really, really fascinating. Wow. That just blows my mind. I've never heard that articulated that eloquently. I've never even heard of that mechanism. Is that unlike a molecular mimicry? It is molecular mimicry, right? Yeah, and I think it was probably... Um, evolutionarily beneficial to those bacteria to develop toxins that mimicked our own structures, right? Um, it's one thing for toxins to do their job and to kill a cell. It's another for them to propagate in a, an immune response that creates an, an autoimmune issue for the rest of the body, right? Mm -hmm. So it's basically hacking your own small intestinal system for them to be able to survive. Wow. Uh, and it just turns out to destroy your enteric nervous system. <laughs> So would a good practical application be going back to all of our functional neurology vagus nerve exercises? So our humming, Absolutely. our gargling, our gag reflex. 
everything Absolutely. learned. Um, I would even argue chiropractic adjustments. So cervical spine, chiropractic adjustments, lumbar spine, sacral plexus, all of that, improving the parasympathetic nervous system, decreasing... No doubt about it. Uh, absolutely. That's what you have to do. And, and at the same time, also focus on restoring oral or peripheral tolerance, getting your body to stop producing antibodies to this toxin and therefore your own tissues. Gotcha. Um, so that's also a readily available test these days, by the way. So yes, yes. And I want people to know who are listening that Dr. Elroy Vojdani is out there in California at Regenera Medical. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Yes. So if you need a functional medicine testing doc, he is out there in California. If you're locally here at the Michigan Family Wellness Community Context, of course, we have the ability to do a lot of these tests as well. Cyrex is the basically what we're talking about, what we're looking at with a lot of these antibody tests. I believe it's Array 14. Is that right, Doc? Array 14 is the um, salivary mm-hmm. test, which does look at a lot of these things. It, mm-hmm. And it looks at even more. You get foods along with um, disruptions of the intestinal barrier. And then uh, the serum testing is Array 2 for zonulin and then Array 22 for the adherence junction abnormalities that I was mentioning. Absolutely. Again, briefly, Doc, as we conclude our talk for today, I think we're still going here with our recording. Basically, can you take us through perhaps that right side of that Vojdani V? Because I believe you guys have some great practical applications for the everyday person, patients to start implementing right away with whatever their context. Because as you know, some of this testing is not the most accessible for a lot of people. Yes, absolutely. So we have two versions of them. We have oh. we have uh, one that is a bit more gut-centered, and then we have a neurodegeneration one. So I'll, I'll talk through the basics of the gut-centered one and also a little bit of the, the neurodegeneration one. So b- basically, the gut-centered one is we call it A through zinc. So you want to obviously remove the things that are causing the inflammation in your gut. You can do this through elimination diets that don't cost you anything to do. Um, and you can kind of gauge responses, you know, whatever, whatever method you have, you can really work within any financial means, but you have to remove the triggers first, right? And then you have to send positive signals to the immune system, right? You, you have to send to our friends, the T regulatory cells, which are responsible for whether we have this autoinflammatory, autoimmune thing going on, you have to send them happy signals. So that's large doses of vitamin A. Uh, I like up to 10,000 units for short periods of time. Uh, large doses of vitamin D based on your testing, you know, that's a pretty easy test to get, but anywhere from five to 10,000, you want some vitamin K27 on board. And then obviously probiotics, zinc, liposomal vitamin C to help boost your oxidative uh, load against fighting some of the pathogens in your gut. Um, I'm a big fan of glutathione. I use it very often. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Master antioxidant, obviously helping you cope with this inflammatory battle, heals blood-brain barriers, uh, really pushes hepatic detox. So I use it very often. Large doses of fish oil. Um, I'm using a lot of short-chain fatty acids, exogenous short-chain fatty acids, particularly if patients are dysbiotic and can't make them on their own. Um, that's a product called Enterovite from Apex Energetics. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, we could go on and on and on. In the neurodegeneration world, they're, they're very, very similar. You add a few things that are different. Um, alpha-lipoic acid, CoQ10, um, resveratrol, curcumin. I'm a big fan of nicotinamide riboside, and I'm a big fan yeah. of Chinese cold cap. And correct me if I'm wrong, but one of your new favorites, the immunoglobulins? 
Yeah. So okay. uh, when treating patients with intestinal permeability, I use serum bovine immunoglobulins mm-hmm. uh, every day, many mm-hmm. times a day. Um, it is expensive, but I think it's really effective. The literature is really showing. Um, I think that what we've experienced in clinical practice using this is panning out. So basically, these are antibodies that are derived from the blood of cows, you know, purified, turned into a powder, and we drink them. It's it's basically an oral version of IVIG, basically just taking pooled immunity and helping your immune system clean out dysbiotic organisms, heal the tight junctions, um, you know, improve any issues you might have with biofilms. I think it's a really powerful tool. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Doc. Briefly, what do you do? You like to dose those immunoglobulins pretty high? Yeah. So okay. I, the literature actually shows really high dosing. Yeah. You know, upwards of ten grams a day. Um, I've been dosing two and a half grams two times a day for anywhere from three to six months. So uh, that's basically two scoops of the SBI Protect from orthomolecular. Yeah. And I, I do like, I was using Interagam, which is the prescription version before this was available. And it does have dextrose from GMO corn. And if you have a patient who's battling SIBO, they might not do so well with that. So that's why I switched to the uh, orthomolecular version. Brilliant. Doc, I can't thank you enough. It was such an honor and a privilege to meet you, to hear your lecture there in Denver. I think you're not only an inspiration for myself, but for so many other people. The work that you're doing with Dr. Aristo Vojdani is just incredible. And I just want to send you all of the honor and appreciation for coming on the platform this afternoon. It's it's my honor, Kyle. I want to say one thing really quick. Please. Um, You mentioned that you're a DC, and I just wanted to say that I really love and support all of the DCs that are practicing in this field of functional medicine. We absolutely need you. Um, The community as a whole, I think, would not be where we are without DCs being so forward-thinking about employing functional medicine and thinking about their entire patient. Um, One of my very good friends and colleagues is Datis Karazian, who is, of course, a DC. And we are in a battle, I think, for... There you go, his books. Uh, We're we're in a battle, I think, as as a community of practitioners of what we feel is the correct way to look at the literature and to treat patients. And there is a lot of blowback from other sides. So we're all a part of the same team. We all support each other and um, we're all in this for the right purpose, which is treating patients correctly. My thought with that doc is that we can do far more together than we could ever do apart. So once again, I send you all the honor and appreciation. I hope that our paths cross again soon. And uh, congratulations again to your growing family. Thank you, Kyle. Appreciate it. It's been an honor being on the podcast. All right, families, what'd you think? We'd love to get your feedback. If you would like to email me about anything you've heard on this or any previous edition of the Family Wellness Lifestyle Podcast, you may do so by writing Kyle at michiganfamilywellness.com and take full advantage of the Family Lifestyle Audio Library at michiganfamilywellness.com. Connect with us on social media at Michigan Family Wellness. Thanks so much for tuning in, families. Have an awesome week and remember... We can do far more together than we could ever do apart. Now that you've been equipped with the latest in family wellness solutions, we want to encourage you to apply these strategies right away. But the thing is, there's still so much to learn. Connect with Dr. Walner's chiropractic and nutrition office by going to michiganfamilywellness.com and click the newsletter sign-up button to join the informative and supportive community of chiropractic wellness. You will also receive as a gift from Dr. Walner a copy of Michigan Family Wellness Solutions. 
an invaluable resource containing dynamic tools to elevate family health and vitality. Michigan Family Wellness wants to thank you for being part of today's podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and give us a five-star rating and review.